Professors FM. Doug, as you know, we have joined the Professors FM podcast network. So it's extremely exciting. It's like for the first time in my life, I'm going to have academic friends. This is big. And as part of this, we're going to talk about some of the other shows on the network. One of the things we talk a lot about in terms of sports analytics is the role of incentives, right? It's all about incentives. And so one of the other shows on the network is called Taxes for the Masses, brought to you by Lisa DeSimone from the University of Texas and Bridget Stomberg from Indiana University. And so what these two ladies do is they dive into all things taxes. I think it's a great compliment to what we do. In some ways, there's nothing bigger in public policy than taxes in terms of shaping the economy and society because taxes change how people behave. So, you know, give it a listen. Great show. Analytics with Mike Lewis, the podcast where we talk about everything you need to know about sports analytics. Here's your host, Mike Lewis, marketing professor at Emory University. Okay, welcome everyone. This is Mike Lewis and Doug Battle with the Fanalytics Podcast. Today, we are doing something a little bit different for us, something we've never done before, and that is providing a primer for how to, and Gotti, you know, if I'm about to say this, Doug, this sounds, sounds tremendously arrogant on my part, <laughs> a primer on how to watch the NFL draft this evening. So how are yeah. you doing today, Doug? I'm doing well. This is uh, essentially NFL draft for idiots, but not really. <laughs> we don't think y'all are idiots. Uh, you know, in, in a way, this is an NFL draft you know, the, uh, the, the college edition, right? So this, this is the grad school edition of the NFL draft. So it's, it's kind of a strange beast that we're going to put together here. So it's like, how do you watch the NFL draft on an intellectual level? Uh, right. now, now, as we go into this, I, I will tell you, Doug, that the NFL draft has probably long been my favorite non-sporting event sporting thing right it's like i I, Mm -hmm. i've always loved the nfl draft from as uh you know going back to as soon as espn took it over and made it a prime time kind of special because i i think the nfl draft is uh and i'll I'll use some key words say the first one i'll use is in terms of why the nfl draft matters is the word hope Mm -hmm. okay so it doesn't really matter how bad your team was you go to the nfl draft and suddenly you've drafted a couple of future pro bowlers maybe a future hall of famer and you're on the upswing now i think you know the nfl draft has been so successful and people love it so much that you've seen the nba draft become a big thing and uh you know i know you're a big college football guy the annual signing day or now signing days is another element of this right right and as a georgia fan the you win, offseason. You win recruiting a lot, right? Well, that's the joke that it's our national championship every year is signing day. Um, but there is some truth to the fact that there's this offseason championship that any team has a shot at, really. And I don't want to compare Georgia to the Detroit Lions or Cleveland Browns because that's ridiculous. Um, but if you do think about it as far as being able to win or, or get the feeling of a big win, for some of these franchises every year, it's like the NFL draft is their Super Bowl um, where this is their chance to yeah. turn things around. And, you know, they're they're planting seeds for the next generation of football. And it's really exciting for everyone because, as it turns out, teams like the New England Patriots tend to continue their success through the draft. Yeah, it's it's every every team is a winner. Well, I mean, you know, and maybe that's too far, right? Because one of the other things that happens with the draft is there's going to be a bunch of letter grades, right? Where, <laughs> and, and, and you just think about how foolish some of this is. And we'll get into the, the details on some of this in a second. You know, the, the idea of grading the drafts, uh, you know, the, the morning after, right? Where it's, you know, before anyone's put on any pads, before anyone's, you know, taken a snap, that we've they've made an assessment. And so truly, you know, think of how odd this is. They're grading drafts, the acquisition of new talent, based on someone else's projections. So it's almost like you're, you're giving these teams a, and maybe this is the first lesson for, for looking at the draft and the aftermath of the draft, that your team is going to get a grade, always a letter grade, that 
really is just a function of how closely they drafted according to their favorite draft analyst projections. Okay. Right. That's crazy, right? Um, yeah, because a team could get a D on a draft and their first round pick could go on to be a Hall of Famer. Um, you can't really grade objectively a draft until 10 years later. Right. And, 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 the, and the thing is, it's, it's like these grades are always based on someone else's projections, right? So it almost ends up being a grade based on a difference of opinion. It's, so your grade is based on how consistent your opinion of players and talents were relative to, and I'll just, I'll just throw him out there since he's the big name in this, in, in terms of, let's say, Mel Kuyper's draft grades, right? Mm-hmm. And it, I mean, there, there's something even deeper to that, right? If you think about how a lot of these mock drafts are formulated, you know, a lot of folks are looking at what other people put into it, right? So they end up being almost the product of consensus. Mm-hmm. And so an, another way to look at the way you, do, you, you generate a draft grade is that it's how far you deviate from the conventional wisdom or from the, the consensus opinion. How far you deviate from that dictates what your draft grade gets to be, right? And if you think about that, that's kind of crazy, and it's almost like the opposite, right? You're, you're looking for, you know, your ideal general manager is someone that can spot talent that other folks can't, right? Exactly. That exactly. They're, that they're going to find the diamond in the rough, but if they choose those likely diamonds in the roughs, they're going to get beat up on draft day which is you know, probably the exact thing you don't want to have happen if you want to have a general manager that's swinging for the fences and trying to uh, you know, take a, a low-level team all the way to the Super Bowl. Right. So essentially, they're just grading um, how close you are to the norm or to the average, what, what the average person that watches ESPN every day would do in their draft and how so. close you come to that. I think so, because so how does a draft analyst figure out how talent is ranked, right? He probably, the, the good ones probably go out and they talk to a lot of folks, right? Mm-hmm. So they're talking to other GMs, they're talking to agents, and they're trying to figure out who is really highly valued. Um, now, of course, in the mock drafts, they're also fitting it to their, their perceptions of team needs, right? But, it, but in general, sort of the, the way draft picks are graded, it's looking at film, looking at the talent, but then talking to other people. And that consensus then emerges in terms of where everyone ranks on the list. You know, I, the, maybe that what's the classic example, though, it's going back a long, a long time now, you know, in terms of who everyone missed on, was Tom Brady, right? Mm-hmm. Well, where was Tom Brady drafted? I think this is, everyone, everyone knows it's like round six or round six, seven? Sixth round. And speaking of grades, if a general manager had taken Tom Brady in the second round of that draft, he probably would have received a grade of a, of a D. Because, it would have been destroyed. You're right. Yeah, because Brady was pegged to go in the sixth round or, or the later round. So if someone had taken him in the first or second round, people would have said, this GM is a fool. Right. And, and so that kind of gets to what we're saying is that, you know, it's based on what everyone else thinks as far as these grades go. It's, it's not based on how successful the player may end up being. They because Tom said- Brady, I think any team in the NFL would go back and gladly spend their second, third, fourth, first, number one pick in the draft any of those picks on Tom Brady. Well, and, Retro- and I want to key in one word that you said in that, that uh, you used the word value. And mm-hmm. I think you're, you're exactly right, that if someone had taken Tom Brady in the second round or the third round even, that the criticism would have been that they could have gotten better value for that pick. Right. right? And, and so it is this notion that there is some value that is pegged to each prospect that, and again, we can, we can argue in terms of how this is assigned. And I think that's something we should talk about here uh, you know, as, we, as we get ready for the draft. You know, there's a projection for how well a player is going to perform. That projection equates to the value. And so if you know, the, the value is not there, the projected value, then you shouldn't take a Tom Brady in the second round. You shouldn't take him in the, in the third round. Okay? Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's fine. But the you know it comes back to this fundamental point of you know what is the job of the executive? It is to find you know in some ways let's say undervalued players. So you, we could we could also if you have a financial inclination, this it's to find inefficiencies in this player valuation market. Mm-hmm. Guys that have been overlooked, who they can sort of uh, you know get get a better deal for for the draft slot or the money that they're going to have to pay. 
Yeah, you're buying low. Exactly. You're finding you're finding that undervalued stock to complete the financial analogy. Mm-hmm. So when we're talking about value, it seems like there's more that goes into you know how a player's valued. Mike, what in your opinion are, are other factors that contribute to that? Well, okay, and so this is where the analytics piece really comes in to things like the NFL draft. And mm-hmm. so fundamentally, what a draft is about is identifying who's going to be talented at the next level, right? That, that's the tricky thing. You're not just looking at how a guy has performed elsewhere in the league. You're looking at how a guy performed in the SEC or the Big Ten and how that's going to convert to the, to the NFL. And so throughout tonight, you will hear, you will hear, so I will think of this stuff as an analyst would, as a statistical analyst in terms of, like, I would like to build a model of performance that is a function of all of these kind of factors that you'll hear tonight, right? But you will hear people talk about their college performance, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, was he a, and, and you will hear these, some of these words over and over again, was he productive in college, mm-hmm. right? You're, you're a Georgia guy. You can imagine there'll be some discussion about Jake Fromm tonight, and one of the key words that they will say is, he was productive at Georgia, right? Right. Maybe, took, his team to, took his team to the national championship as a true freshman. Yeah. So, absolute performance was a productive. That's something that should go into the analyst model. Now, I suspect that, well, well you, you tell me, since you've watched this a little more closely. Now, there'll also be some counterpoints to drafting Drake Fromm, right? What, what, what would the negatives be? They're going to talk about arm strength. Okay. So they're going to uh, say gonna, he doesn't have elite arm strength, right? Doesn't have elite arm strength. They're going to talk about his height. They're going to say he doesn't have all the measurables. He's you okay. know, maybe 6'1", six, 6'2". Six, Can he see over the offensive line when he's thrown in the NFL? Okay. Um, so they're going to talk about measurables. That's a term that, that'll be used frequently. So they'll talk about measurables, right? It'll be sort of relentlessly used and the measurables will differ based on opinions for the quarterback it will be does he have elite arm strength can he make all the throws it will be you know a lot of emphasis on height maybe now of course you know the, the, you can imagine how the, the the panel will debate this stuff right it's like well we've had a couple of quarterbacks in the last few years that have been sub six feet and they've performed well so maybe height doesn't matter mm-hmm. right it, it, it's kind of a it's almost like a ritual sort of debate. But the, the point is something else that goes into these forecasting models. And again, I'll, I'll say forecasting models. Sometimes these are quantitative models. Sometimes these are really just the heuristics or opinion-based rules that decision makers have. You know, probably the most famous, I think, uh, since we're talking about quarterbacks, the most famous rules for drafting quarterbacks are the Bill Parcells rules. There's different versions of this if you look online, but they were things along the lines of, well, you had to, you had to have three years of college, you had to be uh, graduating, you had to win 20 plus games, right? And so they were all things that related to, um, you know, for the most part, kind of intangibles in, in, in terms of evaluating folks, right? You had to be a leader. You had to be committed. You had to finish finish the job. You had to be an intelligent. And so I, I think the, the, the message really is when you're projecting talent, there's a lot that's going to come into it. Past performance at the collegiate level, the measurables in terms of the height, the type of data they collect at the combine, right. and then some of these other intangible factors of, you know, have you shown leadership and commitment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my, my favorite term they'll use is lock. He's a locker room guy. Yeah, okay, a glue guy, right? <laughs> yeah, he's a glue guy. He's a film guy. Yeah, and I think even as we have this conversation, right? So as a stati- statistician by trade, I would ideally want to sort of quantify all of these intangibles, measurables, performance, and try and essentially crack the code, right? To come up with a right. model that's going to help me predict you know who's going to perform well at the at the next level uh, you know for the most part that that's just not something that is all that commonplace at, at this point in terms of how decisions are actually made but i think it, it's important to as you watch the draft just to think about and maybe i'll i'll rephrase this whole conversation to think about the various types of information mm. that go into the decision to draft any given player so so i I think you know the the, the, 
as you watch the draft unfold and we, and we think about how you know these different kinds of pieces of information go into the decisions to draft a player or to not draft a player one of the other things that i think we can look for tonight and any draft is when certain pieces of information start to become really important and the the let's say the theoretical structure i'll sort of put next to that or the way of thinking about that is this notion of cognitive biases okay so we want to gather a lot of information to figure out who we should draft who we're going to project as being a a great player but every year every year you're going to see guys that are suddenly seemingly drafted let's say too high right or you're going to see other guys that, and this is actually, I think, a classic storyline of draft night, right? Is the guy that was invited to the draft, right? Not going to happen this year, of course, right? But right. that just ends up sitting there, pick after pick after pick, right? Yeah. Uh, Lamar Jackson, Brady Quinn, they love showing those guys. And, uh, and, and then they feel the story for how sitting there in that draft room is going to light a fire under them to become this Hall of Fame player. I don't know. They love to spin it that way. Yeah, and, and there's sort of two things, to, two things to think about when you see that kind, of, that kind of situation. So, number one, this issue of cognitive biases, right? So is there something that causes a player to, and usually in this case, is the player to drop. So a guy like Lamar Jackson... You know, why did he drop? I mean, as, as a viewer of this, why do you think he dropped? What's the, what's the storyline there? Well, first off, I think they have a guy like that in the room in the first place because he's a Heisman winner. He's such a high-profile guy. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean he'll be a top 30 pick. And for Lamar Jackson, um, there was a lot of question as to whether his game would translate. That's, okay. that's a a term you'll hear on draft night, whether his game, and they'll probably say that about Jalen Hurts. They love to say that about dual threat quarterbacks. Will his game translate to the NFL? Can he make the decisions that NFL quarterbacks have to make? Is he going to be able to run as much? Because the speed of the game is so much faster, the speed of the defenses. And when you take away that running ability, is he really an elite passer? Should he switch positions? Should he play wide receiver? Lamar Jackson was absolutely one of those guys that, had all those red flags, all those question marks. And, you know, I think that's a big reason why he was sitting in that draft room for an uncomfortably long amount of time for everyone watching. And that's, you know, that, that is a great case study in terms of what we might call a cognitive bias. Okay. And so the way we've set this up, right? It's like, so, so ideally, you've got all this information on performance, physical traits that gives you a projection. Okay, now the reality is those models are probably not really going to exist, right? The data collection, you know, the data formulation, it's just not something that I think is is in general commonplace. And so I, I think people more operate with rules of thumb or heuristics, okay? And so you, you okay. kind of have these notions of it's important that a guy was a winner and that he's six foot four, et cetera, et cetera. Now, in the case of, uh, of Jackson, right, one explanation for the drop would be that there is a bias. And in this case, you know, bias is a funny term. And, and all bias really means in a psychological sense is kind of a, a mistaken decision making, let's say, right? That you tend to make decisions in a certain way that is not consistent with the true information in the environment. Okay? Right. So, Essentially, that, that your previous experience is affecting your decision making but that you have such a limited amount of experience kind of a small sample size of data impacting how you're making your decisions i think that's a great way to put it and the other thing that comes into play you know as an example for jackson is that you might overweight certain let's say recent observations so when you talk about a dual threat quarterback you know in some ways i kind of go to so this is the classic case of the running quarterback Okay, so what is the stereotype of what happens with the running quarterback? You draft the guy, he lights up the league for the first couple of years, and then what happens? Falls off. I think Vince Young's a great example. Um, um, RG3, right? RG3. Injury. Yeah, injury yeah. prone. And, and so you, you draft a running quarterback whose game is in the legs, and the, 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 I think the, the 
the belief is, well, someone's going to take out his legs, he's going to lose half a step, and you're going to lose some value in terms of that pick, right? Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, in, in this case, you know, might think of it as something like the availability bias, which is you've just got these kind of prototypical examples in your head of Vince Young or RG3 that then say, wait, I, I want to avoid this kind of, this kind of player. Now, that, those kind of biases can actually sort of work in, work in both directions, right? So you can almost about, imagine that over the next couple of years, assuming that Jackson doesn't lose a step, doesn't get hurt, that suddenly people might start to look for players that look like his sort of profile. Right. You know, and the, I, I think about the time Jackson was getting drafted most of the historically great quarterbacks we had didn't have that athletic ability as much. You think about Peyton Manning and Tom Brady, uh, not the quickest guys on their feet, but great quarterbacks, great decision makers. And it's almost like commentators, analysts, and even general managers would count it against a quarterback that that he had that extra speed and, and quickness um, because they hadn't seen someone with that be successful. Not that it would actually keep you from being successful well and and you'll continue to hear that right i mean basically whichever type of quarterback wins the last couple of super bowls will be viewed as the prototype right right uh the other thing that i think is interesting in terms of watching a draft and guys that may fall from their original projections and this is a little bit um this is a little bit different vocabulary than folks may have heard but the idea in economics is something called an information cascade Okay. And and the idea there is that you start to uh, well I mean the the basic idea is that decision makers react to the other members of the crowd, and so let's say that uh, you know a, a Brady Quinn or a Lamar Jackson was projected to go at pick number twenty right that that's where they were on, on the on these sort of valuation boards, well when team number twenty doesn't pick them, and team number twenty one doesn't pick them and Mm -hmm. team number 22 doesn't pick them, well, then you start to wonder, right? You start to update um, your projections because these other folks, it's almost along the lines of, well, these other folks must be skipping them because they know something I don't know. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And then the player can end up in in free fall, and suddenly, you know, this first-round projected player ends up going early in the second round or ends up going, you know, all the way down to, let's say, the, the third round, now, of course, on the on the upside of that, that's probably a good way for you to get that higher uh, draft grade, as we were talking about at the beginning of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and my favorite example of that is uh, Sony Michelle coming out of Georgia, and this is uh, rumored, but I like to believe it's true, knowing the Patriots and and how they go about doing things. It had leaked out that he had some concerning knee issues very soon before the draft and there were a few teams that were thought to be interested in him that ended up passing on him and then he fell to the Patriots and then rumor has it that the Patriots were the ones that leaked out the information about his knee um, and, and may have framed it in a way that made it more concerning than it actually was so that they could get their guy. Well another thing that you're going to see examples of and I don't know how you know we, we won't know till the draft plays out tonight and over the next couple of days but this issue of negativity bias mm-hmm. whereas you know small pieces of negative information tend to get blown up in uh, d- during drafts and whether that's because you know general managers and teams just tend to be risk averse they don't want a potential downside or the notion that you know missing on a high level draft pick can have a not just a detrimental effect on a team but can have a detrimental effect on a general manager's career but you know it's it's almost a certainty that you will see stuff like fears about an injury um, mm-hmm. fears about you know he was a, a player was arrested for marijuana or something or, or you know character issues yeah. right that you will see players sort of drop down based on those you know relatively small negative signals yeah i think those are good examples i also think when you watch the draft at least in previous years the analysts tend to focus so much on the negative the negative aspects of the best players in the draft where in the first round or two where they really know their stuff on these guys they will just hit on over and over again 
their failures and you'll almost feel like, is this guy even going to be good? And then when you get to the later fourth, fifth, sixth rounds where all the information that's really available is uh, positive and all of a sudden it seems like these players are flawless. Um, and so I think, you know, with Tua, they'll talk about his knee and through any defensive back, they'll show some some highlights of him blowing coverage and with quarterbacks they'll show some interceptions you know it's like reading that one bad review on amazon before you buy a product or before when you're considering buying a product and there can be a hundred good reviews but that one bad one's what keeps you from buying it sometimes oh you're you're exactly right i mean and i again it is one of my favorite things for watching the for watching the draft I always think along the lines of you know let's say it's a it's a first round pick right some linebacker that's going at about uh, you know position 10 so it's a guy that's been a multiple time all-american and set records in terms of sacks and they will you know they'll have little shots at him right in terms of well but you know he's an inch shorter than you like that position to be Mm -hmm. you know i mean it's um it's a strange phenomena to to watch in in fact um because it, it is this this kind of strange mix of almost like this micro level focus on it's almost like there's too much information and there's too much time and so Mm -hmm. that as they stare at these players long enough they start to focus on micro level details that may or may not or at least have never been uh in terms of any analysis been uh, shown to affect you know long-term performance Mm -hmm. yeah i think another thing you'll see tonight is discussion regarding a player's upside um there's been quite a few players the player that comes to mind immediately to me was darius hayward bay i believe he went number nine to the oakland raiders and his last season in college he had like five or six touchdowns you know under 700 yards pretty mediocre as far as a top 10 player in a draft but he ran a 4-3-40 and everyone felt like you know maybe he didn't have a good quarterback the offensive coordinator wasn't using him right in college and this guy's upside is through the roof we're projecting him to be much better at the next level even than he was in the previous level yeah sort of the reverse of the negativity bias right there's usually a uh, a receiver or a defensive back prospect that runs some absurd 40 time at the combine and mm-hmm. suddenly shoots up the draft list, right? I tend to think of that idea of like upside as, and, and this is a term I have never heard during the NFL draft, but I think it's actually an important, it's an important concept. And maybe it's something that is in the, the back of decision makers heads, at least conceptually, if not in terms of the vocabulary. But when we're talking about doing things like projecting talent, it's like we've got a forecast that this guy is going to be a pro bowl player, right? Or he's going to be a solid starter, right? It's, it's something that a statistician might think of as a point estimate, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's sort of this, this general, you think about it, if we were talking about a, a quarterback, you might have a forecast that this guy's going to throw about, you know, 20 touchdown passes a season, okay? That's, that's a point estimate. The reality is that there's some range and there's some variance, and that's a, that's a key component of forecasting that, you know, in general, people won't use that word, but I think in the back of their head intuitively get, they get the idea, right? Mm-hmm. So there's this expected value, but then there's also this range in terms of where we think the guy's going to turn out, right? So when you're projecting a, let's say, a running back, maybe you think he's going he's gonna to be a guy that's going to gain about 1,000 yards a season, but... The reality is it's more like, well, well, I think he's a guy that's going to gain between 800 and 1,200 yards a season. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about upside, I think what we're talking about is, is risk. And that brings to mind this idea of booms versus busts, right? These mm-hmm. We've already had an example, maybe the classic modern-day example of the boom player of you know a six-round Tom Brady that goes on to be the greatest quarterback of all time. Um, so is there something you can do in terms of drafting when you're forecasting these guys where you minimize, let's say, the downside, the downside risk, right? You don't want to choose a uh, Ryan Leaf as an example, right? Drafted, what was, what, was he drafted second, I think, overall? And, you know, an absolute bust of a career, right? And, and so one of the things that is not spoken of a lot, but if, if, you're, if you're in the draft game, 
you know, your tolerance or your interest in variance uh, in, in terms of how a player is going to perform really should vary based on where you're going to position, right? If you're in the first round, do you really want to make a reach, right? You, you kind of want to have a solid estimate that you're going to get a solid starter or a Pro Bowl player. But when you get to round six and round seven, then you really should be swinging for the fences, as it were, right? Um, you know, that you really you're looking for that genuine upside of a guy that's got something because let's say if you're drafting a guy in the sixth round and they perform much worse than your expectations you don't really care right he's not going to mm-hmm. be a key guy in your roster mm-hmm. but if in later rounds you can find a guy that greatly exceeds expectations every once in a while well that's your that's truly your home run mm-hmm. yeah you'll you'll hear the term raw talent um someone that's raw and like you said you don't want to be drafting those guys in the first round uh, because that, as a general manager, is what makes or breaks you, is those early picks, those valuable assets that you're spending. But in later rounds, you know, if you find a guy that you think is just scratching the surface of what he can be and spend a pick on him, he, he may never become the player you think he might. But if he does, then it's just in addition to what you've already done in the early rounds. Um, and, and I think that's how general managers are often viewed and critiqued. You'll look at a guy like David Gettleman, often criticized. And I remember the year when he took Eric Flowers in the top 10 over Todd Gurley and a number of guys that could have helped the New York Giants out. And then in the second round, he took Landon Collins, who ended up being a pro bowler. Now, if you flip that, if, if the Giants had taken in the first round, if they had taken a pro bowl safety, and in the second round, if they had swung and missed on a tackle, you know, I think he he would have been judged much differently in that same draft. I think that's a great point. That it because it I, and I think that's a great way that you phrase that. That simply by reversing those picks, if he'd been able to do that, having essentially the same exact outcome in terms of the team, mm-hmm. that he would have been viewed as a hero rather than as a, you know a, a target. Now mm-hmm. you know. I wonder how the salary cap ramifications work out in terms of that. I mean, so you're overpaying the first round guy, but you're potentially getting the second round guy for cheaper for longer. Right, right. Um, so it evens out. And so that, I mean, that's a, that's another little aside in terms of the draft and with the the advent of the salary cap. The draft is probably not, people probably don't spend enough time thinking in terms of the, the fact that rookie contracts tend to be cost-controlled in terms of valuing uh, valuing draft picks. But I guarantee you the NFL teams think a lot about that. Yeah, absolutely. And as far as valuing draft picks, it seems like, and this will be clear tonight, that certain positions are valued more so than others. Um, you'll see a lot of quarterbacks go early. Maybe not a lot of running backs, though. Uh, yeah. what, what What do you think contributes to the value of certain positions well and i want to relate this back to a term we used early on in this conversation of this idea of like market efficiency because you're right that you know quarterbacks will always be sort of the one of the let's say the glamour positions of the the league and in, in you know offensive tackles left tackles were up there at least for a number of years right that the game mm-hmm. moves in a way where there's a real emphasis on certain position types versus, let's say, in contrast, it seems like um, inside linebackers, running backs, and offensive guards. Yeah, tight might, ends and tight ends <laughs> might might sort of be, be less valued. That's, that's a topic for the sports analytics people to dig deeper into. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and so let's say in the case of the, the quarterback – I think intuitively we probably we probably can make a pretty compelling story that the quarterback should be a little bit overvalued. And what does overvalued mean, right? But the quarterbacks have such a dramatic impact on the game that it may make sense to invest more in the quarterback position. And by invest more, part of that can be investing more of the, the draft picks. But I think it's a complex equation, right? Because if you can get the, if you can get the top offensive guard, let's say in the draft at a, at a given draft position, versus getting the fourth best offensive tackle, that's where I think it becomes really kind of a question in terms of mm. what has the greater impact on the team. And, mm. and the same thing: can you get the best 
the best running back in the, in the draft or the best inside linebacker versus taking, let's say, the fourth wide receiver or the, the third defensive back. That's where I think teams should probably be very careful in terms of, let's say, not following the herd, not following the crowd, and making their own judgments in terms of in terms of valuation. I mean, the the other side of it too, and you know, all these things end up being related, which means drafting is so complicated at this point. Is let's say you do hit a home run with a with a guy at the quarterback position. Well, guess what? You're really going to pay that guy, right? Yeah. Versus Couple potentially at you know some other position where. Uh, you know the, the the impact on your salary cap is not going to be nearly nearly as great. I mean, th- these get into this like broader issues of how do you actually use analytics to build a team, and I think that is um, that's got to be an area where the uh, you know the data scientists and the statisticians out there have a lot of opportunities to do some interesting stuff. Yeah, I, I think when it comes to inefficiencies in the draft, the running back versus quarterback idea is really interesting to me because if you think about it running backs tend to be most productive in their early years in the nfl when they're on that rookie contract and when they're they're least expensive most healthy you look at todd Gurley, team like the atlanta falcons passes on him several years ago and he's on a rookie contract as you know offensive nfl player of the year Um, now a team like the falcons is signing him to his second contract or on his second contract, so more expensive. And he's got arthritis in his knee. He's not as productive as he was as a rookie. On the flip side, you got these quarterbacks who tend to improve over the years. I mean, Mahomes wasn't even playing in his rookie season, and and this year he's Super Bowl MVP. And so I think with quarterbacks, it's more of a long-term look on things, Um, and and that's they're viewed as such a long-term asset, whereas running backs are more dispensable where you know every couple years you can get a guy in the second third round that'll that'll hold it down i think the marginal difference between players at the position is much less at running back than at say left tackle or quarterback and i think that's one of the main reasons why quarterbacks are valued so high but but again i do think there's some inefficiency in overvaluing quarterbacks and also think there's some inefficiency in teams that reach because of their team needs so you talk about drafting on overall value versus a need could you take the number one guard or the number four left tackle Um, maybe a team needs a left tackle and the best guard of in NFL history is available and they're going to take the number four left tackle well it turns out a few years later they could have traded that guard for you know that same left tackle and another first round pick and so in terms of overall value there's some inefficiency at times when teams are filling holes more so than looking for the best value at their spot in the draft okay so let me say something that's truly a bad direction for a kind of casual listening podcast (laughs) and that is that i think at the heart of what you're talking about is a very smart concept and that is that at least from the outside it seems like the draft is a like a one-off situation right that every year the teams kind of you know they, they make an assessment of where they're at and then they respond to the draft right mm-hmm. and so maybe they reach on a position right because they need a receiver because they just signed a free agent quarterback and again talk about a term that's going to be overused over the next few days this idea of reaching Mm -hmm. probably the right way to look at the nfl draft is as a dynamic optimization problem and like i said this is why i said i was going to apologize for what i was going to do that the right way to think about building a team is to think about drafts over a multiple season horizon right so you imagine that you're constructing a decision problem where you're adding in all these components, right? So you're, you know, you're thinking about drafting quarterback. I mean, and, and the running back example is great in this. Maybe the ideal policy for building a team is to draft a second round running back. So an elite level running back talent at the, in the second round every four years, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you can almost imagine that that is the right approach. You get this guy during his prime 
his prime running years uh, from late, late age 21 to age 25 that also happened to be during his worst earning years, right? Now, that's a terrifying thing for a general manager to do, right? Because you, you almost imagine that you've got this Todd Gurley, you get four great years out of him for dirt money, and then you're almost in a position where, you know what, I'm not going to re-sign him, even though he's near an M- NFL MVP and, mm-hmm. the fans, and the fans love the guy because you've got this dynamic orientation to this, which is, which is continually telling you to reload. You know, mm-hmm. the, the other idea that I've heard people talk about is maybe, maybe given the importance of the quarterback position and how expensive quarterbacks are, that maybe you should almost always overdraft quarterbacks. You should take a lot of quarterbacks in, let's say, the first three rounds and just have them stacked up on the roster with the hope that someone will break through and someone will make it. Mm-hmm. It's, um, I can't imagine there are any teams, NFL teams that really think this way. But you can imagine that that might be theoretically the right way to build your roster in terms of thinking of the talent and investment, the, the talent and investment you want to make in each position, how long these positions tend to last, the variance in terms of how often players are successful at any of these positions, and sort of build a multi-year draft strategy. Mm-hmm. Boy, yeah, and, I, and like I said, to anyone who's still left listening after that, I apologize. <laughs> but we're definitely getting into it. But, but, you know, in, in some ways, it's called fanalytics. And every once in a while, we got to sort of talk about sort of what's really behind this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And in more practical terms, I would say the New England Patriots have been a model for that. If you look at the quarterback position, you know, in Tom Brady's, it's felt like he might be towards the end of his peak for about 10 years. I mean, if, yeah. I remember when he tore his ACL and I had him on my fantasy team and thinking, this is it. And it wasn't. Um, but, you know, every few years they will draft a quarterback, even though they have their guy already. They drafted Ryan Mallett out of Arkansas and um, Garoppolo, who's now with the 49ers, but who clearly was a good value pick for when they got him. And more recently, Jarrett Stidham out of Auburn. And I wouldn't be surprised to see them draft a quarterback um, either tomorrow or sometime this weekend as well. But, but that's a team that understands that there's a lot of moving pieces in the NFL and a lot of things can change. And they're looking down the road for a value pick that can come in at that most crucial position because they know without a at least serviceable quarterback in the NFL, you really have no chance of competing for anything. Okay, and let me uh, let me respond to that with something that I think is also really a critical thing in terms of looking at a draft, in terms of thinking about what's happening in a draft. And, and again, sort of swinging back all the way to our earlier our early discussion in this hour about projecting talent. Okay, and when we talked about projecting talent, we talked about things like collegiate performance. We talked about measurables. We talked about character, uh, sort of the intangibles, right? The one thing that we didn't mention, and I can't for the life of me, well, I mean, now that I start to go down this path, I think every once in a while people will talk a little bit about it on the periphery. But something that people do not spend enough time discussing, and I'll, I'll put this in terms of technical language for at the beginning Mm -hmm. is this idea of what I might call control variables. And what I mean by control variables are things that are occurring beyond the player themselves. So when, so when we're talking about the Patriots, um, you know, and even over the Tom Brady's careers, you know, you've got guys like Jimmy G and you've got uh, Matt Castle who have gone on to you know, pretty good, uh, you know, based on really just a little bit of experience with the Patriots, let's say at least very decent uh, NFL contracts, right? That people have looked at them as, wow, this guy might be something. Right. Uh, the, the danger with something like that is neglecting where they were playing, right? And so you can almost imagine that if a guy's coming into the league and he gets to have Bill Belichick as a coach, his career is likely to be different than, well, and, and, and again, this, this actually seems a little bit cruel at this point. The first pick in this year's draft is going to be who, Doug? Joe Burrow, my guy. It's going to be Joe Burrow, and he's going to go to Cincinnati. You know, not to belabor the point, but if Joe Burrow is going to New England versus Joe Burrow is going <laughs> to Cincinnati. A lot different. 
do we think it's going to be a lot different, right? Because for the most part, when we talked about all these factors that go into projecting talent, we didn't spend a lot of time talking about the organization they play for. But in general, Patriots, I don't know, going to the Steelers, you know, some of these these franchises that seem to have a lot of stability and always seem to be able to put a quality product on the field versus some of these other teams like, let's say, the the Bengals. I mean, and I, gotta, I don't want to sort of pick on it, but you can sort of name your your favorite kind of NFL struggling franchise, <laughs> that what is the impact of the environment of the organization that these guys go to? Mm-hmm. I, you, you could even phrase this a little bit differently, right, in terms of, you know, not, not just the coach, but if you're looking at the success of a quarterback, I, I think we should spend more time thinking about, again, let's call these the control variables, is what is the investment in running backs and what is the investment in wide receiver and offensive line as well? Yeah, and if we're going to talk about control variables, I would even say you can take that same approach to looking at a guy's coming out of college um, because it feels like every year there's you know some guys out of Alabama that produce really well, maybe a running back, for example, and more so than some guy at Iowa State. But are we taking into account the fact that they're playing with all NFL offensive linemen in in college and that they're playing against inferior competition frequently as opposed to guys at schools where even you know regardless of how talented that individual player is the teams they're going up against sometimes are better teams so the control variable is is something that's really tough to measure when you're looking at prospects in the draft and I think that's part of why the combine is used so much because there's no competition and it's just man versus air um, but I also think the combine is is overutilized at times as well. Man versus air. Um, yeah, it, and maybe we'll, let's wrap it up at this point. This is what makes the NFL draft so great, right? Is because on top of everything else, you know, and we've, we look, throughout today, we've talked about statistical forecasting model. We've talked about cognitive biases, uh, dynamic optimization, a little bit on salary cap considerations, the notion of value players versus market efficiencies. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of complexity going on in this. But in some ways, maybe there's too much complexity happening. And so it ends up being something that's really genuinely fun for fans to take part in, right? And for fans to, for fans to argue about. And so when you're talking about like this notion of, you know, like the running back at Alabama has, you know, five offensive linemen clearing the way for him versus the guy at Iowa State. Well, I, I know, you know, from living in the South for the last decade that the other argument that would be made, though, is that kid from Alabama is playing in the SEC, which is right. against a bunch of future NFL players as well. Right. right? And, and so I think what we're trying to do is sort of identify all the issues that people kind of know intuitively and kind of put some more structure on it. Because at the end of the day, right, you're making this point of the measurables from the combine versus the observable performance of doing this against future future pros that were playing for Georgia and Florida and Auburn, mm-hmm. et cetera, right? It's right. great stuff for a debate. Yeah. What, one more thing I wanted to mention is one of my favorite parts of the NFL draft is always the player comparisons that these analysts do uh, because half the guys will be compared to Hall of Famers as if half of every draft class is going to end up being an all-time great player. Um, and I, I think a part of that is just trying to excite fans, but you'll see some wide receiver taken in the third round and they'll say, you know, who's this guy remind you of? And they'll say, Oh, it's uh, it's, he's a lot like Jerry Rice. You know, that's who I would compare him to. And, but they'll do that with like, you know, half, half the wide receivers. Um, the other thing is that every white wide receiver will be compared to Julian Edelman or Wes Welker <laughs> or Jordy Nelson. And uh, I, I have this theory that player profiles are, are sometimes based on looks and appearance more so than the actual style in which a player plays. Um, so that, that's always something to keep an eye on. Well, you know what? And that is actually a really kind of, that, that that's a strong point. And I, I mean, I, I'm not even saying this to give you a compliment, but, but that's a sure. really kind of key point in a lot of this, because I think in a lot of sports analytics, that's what you, that, that's almost like the traditional way of evaluating players. Um, let's say the new way is using a ton of, or let's say the more modern ways, we're going to use a lot of, a ton of data. We're going to build models. We're going to crunch the numbers, right? Mm-hmm. The traditional way in terms of what you're talking about is like this idea of, let's say compa- comparables. Mm-hmm. 
And I do think, I, look, I, I'm with you. I, I love, I love the example of like usually this, it's the white wide receiver, the slot receiver, right? Yeah. But you know, these these comparisons are. I think you know, as a as an analytics guy, I, I think people would think that I'm going to be kind of anti to this idea of comparables. But in general, I think it's actually a really strong approach because, like, you know, we, we've talked about this a lot during today's episode, this idea of all these different kinds of pieces of information. There's some real complexity building a statistical model with all these kinds of pieces of information versus someone that just watches a lot of football and sort of is a genuine football expert because they've been watching this stuff for 20 years. And the way the human mind works is if I'm watching this stuff for 20, 30, 40 years... I might say, hey, this player A, he's a lot like this player B from years ago. Reminds mm-hmm. me a lot of it. So in some ways, it ends up being like this shortcut for taking a lot of information and putting it onto another guy. So it's like a shorthand for communicating a lot of information versus alternatively, we got to have a page full of numbers. So I think that's a... Uh, that, that's a real strong kind of approach to evaluating talent if it's done right. But I do think the reality is you're right. It tends to be, oh, you know, this guy is uh, physical, similar physical dimensions of a guy that played at the same college. And so let's just make that kind of cheap comparison and move on. Okay, so why don't we, uh, why don't we wrap it up from here? So, you know, for everyone listening, uh, enjoy the NFL draft. And hopefully we've given you guys some structure to... Uh, some, some structure and some ideas to think about as you watch this thing evolve, as you hear all sort of the, the, the standard draft buzzwords and you hear all the kind of almost rituals in terms of the coverage that you can sort of put a little more rigor into, uh, into the, the draft. But, you know, the big thing is, of course, enjoy it and uh, debate it and have fun with it in that way. Because at the end of the day, you know, the, the draft is kind of something this is this is just about hope, right? This is this is like the setup for the actual games. So this is something to really kind of view as the spectacle and enjoy it for what it is. Yeah, I just want to say to all those sports fans out there, um, let's really let this draft soak in. I know most years we may watch five picks and then change the channel because it takes so long for picks to happen and it's just kind of slow relative to normal sports. But this year we're in quarantine and there are no sports and this is our Super Bowl and the last dance is our NBA finals right now. And so I'm uh, I'm super pumped for this draft, super pumped for the last dance on Sunday. And I guess in our next episode on Tuesday, we will likely discuss um, those and whatever else is going on in sports by then. Okay. Till next time. Thanks, guys. Thanks.